0: Well, this morning, we're back in the book of 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 20. And as we begin, I bring to your attention, we live in a, a culture of security. We we like to know that we are safe. I don't know if you know this. Americans will spend billions of dollars this year in the matter of security. Uh, in fact, in, in home security, it's estimated that Americans will spend around $20 billion this year just in home security, security cameras, alarms, 24-hour monitoring, uh, making sure every point and entry in your home is secured. We also spend millions and billions of dollars in IT security, also known as cybersecurity. In the last year, Equifax had a data breach, and personal data of 145 million people were stolen. Uber, anyone ever taken an Uber here? few of you. Uber. Do you guys know what Uber is? It's like a taxi system. Uber lost the data of 57 million people this year. Uh, IT security, cybersecurity is a must, especially during our days now where almost everything we do is online, especially our finances. In, in a larger context though, our country will spend over $44 billion in protecting our country from, from different threats. On the government website it says this, securing and managing our borders, enforcing and administering our immigration laws, preventing terrorism and enhancing security, safeguarding and securing cyberspace and strengthening national preparedness and resilience. We believe in security and yet things still happen. Houses are still broken into, bank accounts are hacked, our country still has threats from places outside of America and no matter how much we spend on security, we're not spending enough. It's possible to spend an infinite amount of money on security and still not address every evil that could attack us. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have security. It just means we understand the purpose and the goal of security. Our earthly security can never eliminate any risks that we have on earth because we cannot live risk-free lives. It's impossible. impossible impossible to live risk-free lives. Only God has a risk-free life. Why? Because only God knows the future. We don't. And so we live and we bring security to help minimize the risk, but they won't eliminate them. What does this have to do with 1 Samuel 20? Well, this morning we're going to talk about covenants. A covenant is a form of security. A covenant is agreement, a bond between two parties, to The friendship that we'll look at here this morning in 1 Samuel 20 is is this covenant friendship between Jonathan and David, a bond that's been formalized. And this covenant has been reaffirmed and extended, and it's the focus of this chapter. Uh, The word covenant only appears a few times in the chapter, but it's the subject of the majority of what we're going to talk about here. But why is this the subject of the chapter? Well, it's because of the threat. To David's life. We left off a few weeks ago in chapter 19. We left the scene where Saul is hunting down David. He wants him dead. This isn't a euphemism for wanting him to shut up. No, he wants blood. He wants his head. Saul is seeking something. Uh, he, he wants David out, gone. He wants security too. So this morning we're going to walk through this chapter Uh, by pointing out different ways, four ways, in fact, four ways a covenant works in the life of a believer. So as we begin, I'm gonna pray for you and you pray for me and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather together as the body of Christ and we recognize this morning that you are still alive, that you have risen. You're still alive and you're reigning on high and we acknowledge that and recognize that God, and that gives us the freedom and the ability to come and gather together and to worship you. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had to, to worship in, in song and in the reading of Scripture and in prayer and giving. And now, God, had our opportunity to worship you through the preaching of your word. And we ask that you would be with your people, that you would guide them and lead them and teach them this morning, that you would make uh, things aware to them that they have never seen or understood before or reapply things they already know you would be their teacher this morning. May you do this work and use me for your service. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing a covenant gives, a covenant gives help when in fear. A covenant gives help when in fear. So we start here at the beginning of 1 Samuel 20. Then David fled from Nioreth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is a step between me and death. The chapter begins with David's questions to Jonathan. This is David's first recorded words to Jonathan, although I'm sure there was much conversation that's not recorded. And David questions uh, this, the situation to Jonathan and begins with humility. He asks the question, what have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? David begins by showing the maturity of a firm believer in God. He, he seeks answers with humility. If David could discover the problem, then perhaps he could go about to address the problem. And I wonder, just briefly, how many of our struggles on earth could be minimized if we showed the same level of humility that David shows here. But Jonathan doesn't see the threat the way that David does. The last thing Jonathan remembers is the commitment that his father Saul gave in chapter 19, verse 6, where Saul swears that he will not pursue David to have him killed. And as we saw a few weeks ago, Saul is not a man of his word and does, in fact, try to have David killed. But Jonathan didn't see it. He doesn't understand the fear that David is experiencing. David believes that Saul is is getting close to him, that he's a dead man, and he's right. But Jonathan needs to see it. David feared Saul. Could you blame him? Saul was king, and three times Saul tried to throw a spear to kill David. Twice, Saul tried to send David on a, a dangerous mission that the Philistines would kill him then. Three times, he had enlisted his servants in various plots to do away with David. It seems that David had every right to be fearful for his life in the hands of Saul. And many feel that David had every right, but, but are we honoring God when we act out of this constant fear? Paul reminds the, the Roman believers saying, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin." Is God honored by us only acting out of fear? No. We live in faith. We act in faith. And that God is the one that will bring about the resolution. But here's David in the midst of his life being threatened. And Jonathan then understanding, trying to understand what the situation was and how he'll act. And and, and what will happen here is a covenant will be established between the two of them. Verse 4, then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king, but let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant, but if he's angry, then know that harm is determined by him. So David here hatches the plan. Uh, The new moon celebrations would begin tomorrow and David would send Jonathan on a mission to show him, to unveil for him, the hostility that Saul has towards David. The new moon was a religious ceremony on the night of each new moon. You can read more about it uh, in your spare time through Numbers 28. It was expected, though, during this celebration that each member of the royal court would would attend this meal. Even though there's this, this threat against David by Saul, he would still be expected to be there. He's the Israelite champion. He's uh, the head of his military. He's the son-in-law. He was supposed to be there. But David wouldn't go. No, he hides himself in the field. And then David concocts this lie for Jonathan to share with his father. And Now, just because this lie is in the Bible doesn't mean it's okay. Just make note of that. He's not saying lying is okay. I hope you know that. David would later regret this action. David needs to know, from his vantage point, he needs Jonathan to know that Saul is a threat. And and hopefully through this situation, it'll it'll be impressed upon Jonathan, be shown to him that things are not good between David and Saul. And so the plan is for David to be gone for this important festival. Saul would most definitely notice that he is gone, and Jonathan would then give the excuse... It was a dangerous excuse. This would not be looked at lightly from Saul. This was undermining his leadership and his position. What would Saul do? How would he react to the the avoidance of David? Well, we'll get to that in the third point here this morning. But the plan is made, and David is securing again the promise of the earlier covenant. Verse 8, continuing. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? Why Why would David turn to Saul's son in the midst of a threat? It's only because of the covenant that was made earlier. And what is a covenant? What does it mean? A covenant is a relationship, but it's It's more than a legal relationship. It's based on love and intimacy. Now, I realize when I say words like intimacy, I'm losing half of you men who are checking out at this point. It's not a bad word, so stick with me, men, all right? Intimacy is not bad. A covenant is a relationship that is more loving and more intimate than merely a legal relationship, and yet more binding and enduring and accountable than merely a personal relationship. A covenant is a stunning blend of Law and love. It's it's stunning because it's a personal relationship made more loving and intimate because it's legal, though voluntarily, and in mutual and binding promises and vows to be loving and to be faithful no matter what the circumstances. That's a covenant. And the word used here to describe this covenant is the Old Testament word, hest. We, We saw that word when we studied the book of Ruth and her relationship to Naomi, hest. What does it mean? It means to show faithful love. It's seen almost 250 times just in the Old Testament. It can be translated steadfast love or loving kindness. And it carries the idea of love and compassion and affection, but often with the addition of loyalty and reliability and faithfulness. Test is not merely love, but loyal love. Not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. Not merely affection, but affection that is commitment attached to it. And so when David approaches Jonathan of verse 8, he's appealing him to, to treat him with this de- devoted love, this hest. It's it's a covenant love. It's, it's bringing security. And the order is this. Love gives itself in covenant and then gladly promises a devoted, loyal love in that covenant. And the covenant partner then rests in the security of that promise and then can appeal to it as David does here. And then through this, friends, a covenant brings security. Something that we long for in this world. We love to be secure, to be safe. So much so that we're willing to give so much to get that security. And in David's disintegrating world, there is yet one space of sanity. One refuge still intact for him. It's Jonathan. There was a covenant. And and there David could find security. David could find faithfulness, and he finds his security in this friendship. This is a necessity for the Christian life. I'm afraid that some of you won't make it in the Christian life simply because you have isolated yourself from other Christians in friendship. I preached an entire sermon last summer on the subject of friendship from the book of Proverbs and encourage you to go listen to it. But ultimately, we learn about friendship through the, through the Trinity, through the Godhead, God it can be understood through friendship. God is friendship. The, the Christian God, the biblical God is a friendship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, knowing and loving one another from all eternity. And he made us in his image, meaning we need friendship. But we turn from him. You, you know what happens when you've been betrayed by a friend on earth, right? What happens then after betrayal, the friend turns away from you, they leave. But here's Jesus, the perfect friend, He is the beautiful picture of true friendship. He doesn't leave. He stays. He doesn't run. No, he takes our place. He is the perfect friend who is faithful and truthful and loving and forgiving. He is the perfect friend that takes our wounds upon himself. Instead of inflicting them on us, he takes them for us. And you see, as a Christian, he's he's in a covenant with us, with his children. He won't forsake us. He won't leave us. He'll be there. And the song is right. What a wonderful friend we have in Jesus. On the cross, he lost his friendship with God so we could have friendship with God. Jesus Christ on that tree experienced what we should have experienced. He is the perfect friend. He let us in. He is the ultimate friend. Because of Christ, we have the privilege to have friends here on earth. Because of the gospel, we can experience real AND GOOD, AND LASTING FRIENDSHIPS HERE ON EARTH. ONE OF THE THINGS THAT I LOVE ABOUT THE LOCAL CHURCH IS THAT I CAN BE FRIENDS WITH MANY PEOPLE THAT I WOULD NOT NORMALLY BE FRIENDS WITH. I HAVE FRIENDS IN THIS CONGREGATION THAT ARE NOTHING LIKE ME IN ANY HUMAN WAY. BUT NOW WE HAVE A DEEP CONNECTION. WE HAVE A LASTING CONNECTION BECAUSE OF THE CROSS. And Jesus is breaking into the lives of all kinds of people, corporate and creative, black and white, young and old, downtown and back country. And suddenly people who, who would have never given the time of day to someone else, you now have fellowship with on a weekly basis. People who come from drastically different backgrounds now hold the strongest bond because of their love for the Savior who saved them. Friends, this is what a church is. This is one of the... THE MAIN REASONS WHY YOU JOIN A CHURCH, NOT JUST ATTEND. AS A CHRISTIAN, YOU COMMIT TO OTHER BELIEVERS. YOU COVENANT WITH THEM. YOU SHOULD KNOW THAT FOR THOSE OF YOU THAT ARE MEMBERS, BUT WE HAVE A a CHURCH COVENANT THAT EVERYONE SITS DOWN AND READS AND AGREES TO WHEN THEY JOIN OUR CHURCH. It's, IT'S RATHER SIMPLE, BUT IT'S INCREDIBLY BEAUTIFUL. I WON'T READ ALL OF IT, BUT I WANT TO READ A FEW LINES FROM IT. IT SAYS, WE WILL WALK TOGETHER IN BROTHERLY LOVE AS BECOME THE MEMBERS OF A CHRISTIAN CHURCH, and exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship and ordinances and discipline and doctrine. And we will, when we move from this place, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. See, friends, some of you are missing out of the blessings that come from coveting together as a church family. And you might say, well, I've been here a long time attending, and I feel like I have those things. But really, friends, you're just observing our church, observing other members without really committing to them. As members, we have covenanted together. And if you're just attending, you're watching this. You're observing this. We are a church family and you've been watching us. Something important to do before you commit. But there needs to be a step of commitment one to another. That's what church membership is. And friends, I love you. But I need to be honest with you. If you've been attending for a while and still haven't joined this membership, then you are missing out on the joys of coveting together as a church family. There are risks. Most definitely, there are risks. There always are. You won't find a perfect church because as soon as you do and you go or I go, it's not perfect anymore. There are always risks. But as a church family, we we covet together and we hold each other accountable. We pray for each other. We love each other. We walk with each other. We don't give up on one another. We hold each other up. This is what families do, right? This is what your families do. I, I, I've seen and heard it. I've, I've heard the, the testimonies of what you do in your families. And I pray that this would be an encouragement to you. And I know as, as an elder board, we've been talking about this and praying about this. How can we encourage people to join with us, to covenant together with us? And we'd love to talk more about it. The Lord's laid upon your heart to do so. So this is all my first point. What time is it? All right, we're going to keep moving. First one, a covenant doesn't only give help and fear, but secondly, a covenant gives hope when in difficulty. A covenant gives hope when in difficulty. Verse 11, and Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field, and Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time, tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well pleased toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. So the earlier conversation must have been inside somewhere because they now step out, out into the field to be more discreet. Now the conversation shifts from David's fear of security now to Jonathan's fear of security. Jonathan feared the one who was afraid. He understood that The day was coming when the one despised, the one David, would be king. And Jonathan understood that the matter at hand wasn't just about David, but about the nation. This was much bigger than Saul. And for the plan, Jonathan would do exactly what David asked him to do. He commits to follow through. His word is his bond. But Jonathan's commitment to David in this plan is is simply astonishing. Did Did you catch it there in verse 13? May the Lord be with you AS HE HAS BEEN WITH MY FATHER." JONATHAN AGAIN RECOGNIZES AND AFFIRMS THAT DAVID IS THE ANOINTED, THE ONE WHO WILL ASSUME THE THRONE. HIS WORDS ARE IMPLICIT. DAVID WILL BE KING, GOD'S KING. AND JONATHAN SEEMS TO MAYBE UNDERSTAND THE FUTURE BETTER THAN DAVID DOES AT THIS POINT. AND JONATHAN KNOWS WHAT HAPPENS WHEN THE DYNASTY IS TRANSITIONED. VERSE 14, IF I AM STILL ALIVE, Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. See, Jonathan is is formally committing himself to David as, as soon to be his king. And one simply doesn't do what Jonathan is doing here. You don't hand over your place to your rival, the the promise, and then promise to protect him. This is not not what you do. Especially when your place is Jonathan is to be the crown king. He is the crown prince now. If if Jonathan were normal, he would remove David. He would kill David. He would turn David over to Saul for his death. In fact, this is what makes Saul so angry later in the chapter. Jonathan's covenant commitment to David flies smack in the face of all the political sense here. It's, It's as if you are on track to inherit the business from your father. You have been groomed for this. You have worked and been trained for this your whole life. It's who you are. It's the company name. It's your name, and it's gonna be yours someday. And then you realize someone else is better qualified for it. And so you hand it over to them. You don't sell it to them for a sizable fortune. No, you sign it over to them. You give them the keys to the company, all of it, lock, stock, barrel. And you hope that you can have a position in the company someday. You hope that you might have enough money to feed your family. You see, this is financial suicide, what Jonathan's doing. And this is from the world's perfect perspective. It's Just plain stupid. Not good financial sense here. It makes no sense. What is Jonathan doing? Well, Jonathan knows something. He knows something about David. He knows that he will be the anointed. He will be the king. And Jonathan's fears have risen to the surface. Why would Jonathan have anything to fear? Well, we have to look back into the Bible history. When a new regime or a new dynasty came to power, the name of the game was Purge. You don't have to go very far into the pages of Scripture to see evidence of this. You can read about it in 1 Kings 15 and 1 Kings 16 or 2 Kings 10. Those passages describe what happens when the old regime is removed. It was uh, conventional political policy. Everybody knew it, everybody believed it, and everybody practiced it. You wiped them out. Almost everybody believed it, though. David wouldn't do it. He would preserve the crown prince's family because he makes a covenant with Jonathan. Culture and politics preached otherwise, but a covenant conquered culture here. Both Jonathan and David make unusual covenants and in so doing trample the human standards that are set up. And the covenant becomes the way in which they receive the hope in the midst of difficulty. Well, now, how will this plan work? Jonathan rehashes it again in verse 18. Then Jonathan said to him, "Tomorrow is a new moon, and you will be missed "'because your seat will be empty. "'On the third day, go down quickly to the place "'where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand "'and remain beside the stone heap, "'and I will shoot three arrows to the side of it "'as though I shot at a mark. "'And behold, I will send the boy, saying, "'Go find the arrows. "'If I say to the boy, "'Look, the arrows are on the side this side of you, take them.' then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. Now I realize that today we're not embroiled in, in the dynasty of a kingship. There are no big transitions to think through in a culture. There is most definitely opportunities to follow through with covenants. There are still opportunities for us today to have fidelity in, in a much less dramatic form, but it's in the form of marriage. It's not sensational, it's not glamorous, it's just a covenant. Marriage in sickness and in health. I read about one marriage a number of years ago in particular that shows the incredible significance of the marriage covenant. It was a young couple, Ian and Larissa. It's a unique situation. In 2005, when they're both in college, they met and began dating. And they both had the view that while they were dating, it was for the purpose of marriage, for the marriage covenant. And after 10 months of the relationship, something tragic happens. On the way to work one morning near Pittsburgh, Ian was in a very traumatic car accident. And... As Larissa and her parents receive the phone call and head to the hospital, they're fearful of Ian's condition, fearful that it might be a brain injury. And their fears were realized when they arrive, and Ian does suffer a traumatic brain injury, leaving him incapacitated, unable to speak, unable to move. And soon after that, Larissa, at this point just dating, moves into Ian's parents' home to help care for him. She says they would go out on dates, even though he couldn't speak and he couldn't eat. She says that it must have looked pretty weird to people. But she loved spending time with him. She said that she knew before the accident that Ian was ring shopping. They had many discussions. They were ready for this covenant of marriage. He was ready and she was ready. She loved him. She had already committed her heart to him. So they waited until he was able to regain his speech again, and they got engaged. She writes this. The decision to get married was one of the hardest but simplest decisions we'll face. I've heard that choosing marriage for anyone can raise doubts and fears. I think a disability takes those normal fears and multiplies them. Marrying and Ian meant that I was signing on things that I didn't think I'd have to choose for myself, like working my whole life, having a husband who can't be left alone, managing his caregivers, remembering to get the oil changed, advocating for medical care, balancing checkbooks, and on and on. The practical costs felt huge, and those didn't even touch in the emotional and spiritual battles that I would face. But in light of all the practicals and emotional, it was very simple. We love each other. And we love God. And we believe he's sovereign. And this loving God who rules all things. And because of Ian's condition, the courts had to decide that it was in his best interest to be married. The judge who approved the marriage license said, you two exemplify what love is all about. I believe that marriage will not only benefit you both, but our community and hope that everyone in this city could see your love for one another. It's astounding to me, but the world says, why would you do this? He was in an accident. You weren't even married. You were just dating. She hadn't committed herself, but friends, she realized she already had. There are even more stories of this commitment with couples that have been married 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and either the husband or wife are now failing, and the other stands by them to the very end. This is what a covenant looks like in sickness and in health. And Ian and Lurice's story is like David and Jonathan. They both have something to give and to gain. They both have fears as they walk into this commitment but they all serve a living God who's faithful. The marriage covenant is a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's a picture of something more. So is this covenant of David and Jonathan. It's a picture of something more. The covenant gives us hope when there's difficulty. Third, a covenant demands a costly commitment. A covenant demands a costly commitment. This covenant between David and Jonathan will be costly for both of them. There's peace between Jonathan and David, but it comes at the price of hostility between Saul and Jonathan. Jesus said in Luke fourteen twenty six. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Hate. That's a strong word that Jesus uses. What is Jesus talking about? Jesus is speaking a way to say that, so, so hate should be understood as a stark and vivid word for loving family members less than we love Jesus. We surrender all loves when we come to follow Jesus Christ. Nothing can have the place of Jesus as a Christian. Christ must always be supreme. And Jonathan sees God's kingdom being established through David, and he submits himself to it, even though it be costly for him. Verse 24, so David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, the, as at other times on the seat of the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, Something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. Everyone is there except for David. That's not right. Where's David? Saul thinks maybe that he's unclean, as Leviticus 7 says. So he's just gone by accident, or gone on purpose for this day. He, he doesn't initially think anything's happening. Bergen, in his commentary, writes, this ceremonial uncleanness could be caused by accidental contact with anything ritually unclean or detestable, including such things as forbidden insects, moist seeds that have come in contact with a dead animal, any, another unclean person or a human corpse, to name a few. And so it seems this is what Saul's thinking of David. He's unclean. But verse 27, on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan and his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Now, Jonathan steps into dangerous waters. This covenant he's made with David has risks. I think Jonathan tries to make this excuse look as good as possible by adding the little part about his brother. But we all know it's a lie. It's a ruse. It's there to try to fool Saul. Or better yet, it's there to draw him out. David wasn't back at home with his brother and family for the festival. No, he was hiding in the field. But there's another slip up here uh, that Jonathan makes when he tries to embellish the story when he uses the, the words, let me go, he is inadvertently uh, giving away the game. The, the words literally mean, let me escape. Not good for David. See, Jonathan is a very poor liar. So let this be a lesson for you kids trying to pull fast when a mom and dad. Saul sees right through the lies of his son. Then verse 30. Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, I do, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And as he set up the test earlier, there, there were two possible outcomes. First, Saul could be fine with David being with his family, which would show that he's gotten over his anger. Or second, Saul would be angry. And anger here is an understatement. Saul flies into a rage. Jonathan receives the full weight of his rage. The, the abuse that Jonathan receives was extreme, teetering on the obscene. The literal truth, though, was that Jonathan was in fact the son of a perverse parent. Not his mother, but his father. And Saul is incredibly upset over Jonathan's attachment to David. And he sees this abuse to his own family. And in Saul's weak attempt to bring Jonathan back to his side, he appeals to three powerful motivators. He appeals to shame, guilt, and greed. First, shame, when that's easy for parents to use with kids. Jonathan's scandalous betrayal was bringing shame on him, and it was bringing shame on the family. Second was guilt, because he mentions Jonathan's mother. His actions to betray the family will bring shame on his mother and he wants him to feel guilty for his actions. And third is greed. Do you see it there in verse 31? As long as David is alive, Jonathan won't receive the kingdom. He'll lose out. Now parents, make note of these three motivators and avoid them. Don't apply this to your parenting. Of course, the last point is right. He's right. Jonathan will lose out. His kingdom won't happen. David will be king. But Jonathan is resolved to follow God more than his, his unbelieving father. You see, Jonathan's mother wasn't the cause for the end of the kingdom. Neither was David or Jonathan. It was all because Saul refused to obey God. He was suffering because he chose himself and not God. And now Jonathan has a terrible choice to make. Verse 32 Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. See, Jonathan was forced to choose between David and his father, the king. And he defends David and asks for evidence of what he has done to elicit such contempt from him. But he doesn't get a verbal answer. Instead, Saul picks up his spear and throws it at him. He's a a bad aim. Or God is in the midst of this. A moment ago, Saul was enraged because the son of Jesse would rob Jonathan of his kingdom. Now Saul is trying to take away his own son's life. Sometimes the covenant demands a costly sacrifice, right? Sometimes we're given the same choice as Jonathan is here. We might have to choose like Jonathan does. We might have to choose between peace with Christ And peace with our families, or peace with our friends, or peace with our work, or peace with our culture. For many of us, this decision isn't as bold as Jonathan's is here. Some of us have Christian parents and a good family background, but many in our world don't. So them for them, choosing to follow Christ means they're rejected by their families. They will possibly lose out on income because they're now shunned by the marketplace. They can't work. They don't have an earthly family anymore. And stepping out in faith to follow Jesus is costly. I have friends from Bible college who serve as missionaries in Chad, Africa, an incredibly hard place to live and minister. And last year they had a man named, I'm gonna mispronounce it, I'm gonna try, murbarik And this man came to faith after many, many months of my friend Justin sharing the gospel with him. And he knew what would happen soon after he was rejected by his mother and father and six siblings. He lost his job. He lost his place to live. He lost everything earthly in a matter of weeks. And he knew this. He walked openly into his decision to follow Christ, knowing that he would lose everything. Matthew 10 37 through 39 says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To side with Jesus means we might be siding against our families. To side with Jesus will always mean Difficult decisions that will be costly. But friends, it's always worth it. It's always worth it. And a covenant sometimes demands a costly commitment. And so we've seen first, a covenant gives help when in fear. Second, a covenant gives hope when in difficulty. Third, a covenant demands a costly commitment. Now fourth, a covenant gives peace when none can be found. Verse 34, and Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. See, just like that, Jonathan's relationship with his father would forever be changed. His allegiance with his father would come to an end. Verse 35, in the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. So Jonathan now using the code language that he and David had determined signals for David. But Jonathan goes beyond the plan and gives his weapons to the boy to carry them to the city. Now this is a tricky situation with the enemy of Saul. Jonathan is now left with no weapons as he goes out to meet the enemy of his father. But what does this communicate to David? There is no hostility. He is faithful to the covenant with him. But this meeting between the two of them was history's most moving farewell scene. Verse 41 and as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. David still acts like Jonathan's subordinate, bowing before him three times. David wasn't king yet. It would not claim his kingship yet. He is humble. Well, then the kiss. This has caused some issue for commentators for many years. And I don't understand why. The kiss is to be understood in the context of Old Testament times. It's a symbol of friendship and great respect. Kisses will appear in the story of David with a variety of political motives, both good and bad. And kissing was a way of greeting and accepting the other into your company. It was also a way to show submission to their position. It was a, it was a greeting, and it's still present today in some cultures. In fact, it's, it still happens in some European countries, and I try to avoid those countries. Because I just think, really, can't we just do a fist bump? Can I get an amen at all? (laughs) But not only the kiss, they, they weep together. They weep together. And the chapter ends as David leaves. Verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Friends, I I know something about you. I know that you live in David's world right now. Sometimes your world is a world of danger. Sometimes your world is a world of disappointments. Sometimes your world is a world of confusion and anger. Sometimes it's hard to understand what God is doing. It's hard to see how God will work out the struggles that are in your life and how he will remove the sadness. And somehow, some way, you're trying to make sense out of the world in which you live. Friends, what did you think about God this week? What did you think about yourself this week? And how do you reconcile what you think to what you should know? For that, you need the word of God. You See, the Bible is meant to be a mirror to show us ourselves, to show us who we actually are. We've seen a few characters in this chapter this morning. We've seen Saul. Something I didn't mention, but I, I need to. In, in verse 30 of our chapter, it says that Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And then he continues to say some really rotten things. Now, I want you to hear me. It doesn't say that his anger was caused by Jonathan. No, his anger was ignited. It was kindled by Jonathan. The anger was already there. It was there because of David. Right? No. It wasn't there because of David. Was it there because of Jonathan? No. Saul's anger was there because of God. The war in this passage is not a war between Saul and David. No, this is a war between Saul and God. Saul is angry at the plan of God. He is angry at God's purpose. He is obsessed with power and control, and that was taken away by God. He is obsessed with continuing his line, continuing his power, and when that's taken away, he explodes at those that stand in the way. Now listen, friends, those people that you blame for your anger have never caused your anger. Those people are only ever the occasion for that anger. But the anger was already there in your heart. You just needed someone there to ignite it, to kindle it. And what we see here in Saul is the scary slavery to sin. He is obsessed with power. And when that's threatened, he lashes out. He hurls a spear at his son. Now, some of you might say, well, I'm I'm good. I, I don't lash out like that. It doesn't mean, though, that you don't have a problem with anger. Some of us lash out in words and actions, and others lash out in attitudes and defiance and withdrawing from people and ultimately blaming everyone else except for ourselves. Saul might be showing us something about ourselves. And then there's David and Jonathan Isn't it remarkable that David's closest friend in all the earth happens to be the son of the king who desires to kill him? I mean, who could write this story but God? God gives us wisdom and love and protection in our lives, and he gives it to us in many ways through the friendships that we have. This is God's love for David here. This is how God will show David his plan for him in the future. It's through this Covenant friendship with Jonathan. God's grace comes to David through the vehicle of this godly man who was willing to endanger himself for the sake, for the sake, and for the future of the, of the king to come. And friends, what a picture of biblical love! But ultimately, the character in the story that is never named is God. He is behind all of this. He's the author of the story, isn't he? This passage points to the zeal that God has for his plan and for his kingdom and for eventual redemption. It is God who turned his back on the evil rejection of, of Saul, removing him from the kingship. It was God who was protecting David in every way. It was God who raised up Jonathan to be an instrument of aid and comfort and grace to the future king. And God is zealous for his kingdom. and He's zealous for his glory. And so every character in the story is pointing to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Saul, who was Desire to hold on to his position, his power, to hold on to his seat on the throne is in direct contrast to our King Jesus who gave up his position in heaven, who gave up his power in heaven, who gave up his seat to come down and be obedient to death, even death on the cross. And Jonathan shows us what this covenantal love looks like, what true friendship looks like, a commitment like Jesus to forsake the crown on earth, to show love and commitment. And so where does 1 Samuel 20 leave us? It leaves us in one place. Brothers and sisters, there, there is no security, there's no surety, there's no hope, there is no life, there is no future, But what is except what is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our forgiveness. He is our righteousness. He is our hope. And by awesome grace, he is our friend. And maybe you're here this morning, you've never placed your life in the hands of Jesus. And I would plead with you this morning to do that. Jesus is your only hope. In this life and the life to come, Jesus is the best friend you can have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning the way, thank you for giving us this radical, cosmic act of friendship. Jesus Christ, as he came and died on the cross, and he so radically befriends us that we can become the friends that we need to be. We can follow through and commit to one another. And because of Jesus because of what he has done for us on the cross, we can know today that we will spend eternity with you, Father. Help us to live in light of that truth as we leave this place. Help us to share this glorious gospel with all that we come in contact with, Father. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.